Good afternoon. Hello, welcome. My name's Rory Hyde. Uh, I'm the creator of Contemporary Architecture and Urbanism at the Victorian Albert um, and host today. Welcome to the M Pavilion and um, thank you for coming. Um, to start off, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the people of the Kulin Nation, um, and to pay our respects to the elders past, present and future. Um, we're also joined by Philip Goad from the Melbourne School of Design, University of Melbourne, professor. Um, and today we're talking about what would Boyd do? Uh, Robin Boyd, of course, architect, um, journalist, extraordinaire, cultural commentator. Um, he created a program called the Small Home Service. Philip's going to talk about it in detail. Um, but effectively, we're, it was a, a, a wonderful post-war program to, to look at the suburbs and to improve design in the suburbs. Um, and, and that's really the subject of today. Of course, everything's changed. We live in a, in a completely different world. So the, the tools that were used back then in the 1950s and 60s are no longer going to work for us. And really the point of today is to have an open discussion, um, to get as many voices as we can um, to contribute to this debate and to, and to um, throw it open, I guess, to the whole crowd. So again, it's wonderful to be here in this, in this fantastic space by OMA. Um, again, the, 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 the format of this room itself is a kind of promise of discussion, I think. I think it, it demands that we um, don't do as much talking, uh, but we do as much listening um, and, and sharing. So uh, in that spirit, we're going to keep this very brief from our end and then really um, open it up, as I say, to discussion. So... Um, uh, just to set the scene a little bit... Um, as you know, Melbourne's growing rapidly. We're adding about 500 people per day or 100,000 people a year, which is one of those kind of astonishing things. Um, and the vast majority of those people who are coming to the city and, and, and who live here already live in the suburbs. And what we mean by suburbs is basically anything beyond Zone 1. Um, I mean, some of it's well connected with transport, but most of it is not. Uh, most of it is um, poorly, is, it requires you to own a car. Most families even own two or three cars. Um, and uh, really, that's taking its toll in lots of different ways for families, as well as for the scale of the city and the, and the kinds of investments that we're forced to make. So it's insanely complex. It, it takes in everything from economics, urban planning, demography, culture and architecture. Um, it's difficult to sum it up in, in five minutes, but I'm gonna, uh, there's a one way I like to describe it, which is to come at it from two directions, from the top down and from the bottom up. So the top down is, is as I've mentioned, it's about these um, transport woes, uh, the commuting time, the traffic, all the stuff that we're familiar about, um, but also the things which are coming over the horizon, aging population, um, housing costs, uh, stretched public services, um, and also non-traditional family types. Uh, most people are very surprised to know that 30% of households are of single occupants. So that's 30% uh, of us live alone. Um, and that's certainly not reflected in the, in the media or, or in the IKEA catalogue or in the ways that we understand what, uh, what living is like today. So, and the suburbs are in a way, uh, as an urban typology, both brilliant, desirable, but also exacerbating many of these issues. So the question is, I think, how can we celebrate the suburbs for what they are, for what they offer, the freedom, the space, the light, the connection to nature, but to make them sustainable in an economic, um, environmental, social way, um, and, and to make them, uh, I guess, solid communities. So that's the top down, that's a big picture, and in a way that might be like, we have to do this, but the other angle is to say, we want to do this, or this is um, something which is going to improve our lives and, and make, uh, you know, being in the city, you know, really live up to this promise of the world's most, most livable city. So um, two examples then from the bottom up, from individuals and, and the way people live. Uh, one's a good example, one's a sort of uh, example of, of potential. Uh, Nishta, this was a story that was uh, running The Age a few months ago. Um, she lives in Sunbury. She's got three kids. She's got a brilliant job at Deloitte in the Docklands as an accountant. Um, but she can't do it all. She's, she's got a 90-minute commute. She can't get the kids from school. She can't even be home to cook their dinner. So there's this sort of space-time and architecture conundrum where 
Simply the city isn't allowing her to live the life that she could. Therefore, she has to quit that job. She has to remain in her suburb at home um, in order to look after the family. And that's, you know, in this day and age where we talk about um, gender equality at work, it's kind of like uh, that's one of these massive barriers that often goes undiscussed is the sim simple geography of, of the city. Another more kind of positive or uh, potential statement is uh, many elder people, they might have paid off their mortgage, they might, their kids might have left the house, they're probably living there with a couple of spare bedrooms, um, and yet they still need money to live. They've got their asset rich but cash poor. Um, they probably have to sell the family home, divide up the money, move somewhere else, they lose the connection to their community, they lose the, the place that they've grown up with, their neighbours and, and those support groups. So um, one way that we're seeing good architects and, and good planning uh, enter into that space is to uh, adapt the home, to take on other residents or to um, add a new resident on the block or to create public space within that, within that building. So um, we'll look, yeah, I, I would argue that the, if the 20th century was about building things, the 21st century is going to be about adapting things. And I think adapting the suburbs to make them support the way we want to live is going to be a really big design challenge and a, and a big exciting one at that. So they're the sort of two directions, top down, bottom up. Um, and then we come to this question, what would Boyd do? Um, what is the kind of uh, magic formula that combines media and economics and um, policy and design that can address this big gnarly problem with 500 people arriving every day. So that's where I'm going to hand over to Philip, who's going to discuss the small home service as a brilliant precedent. Um, and as I say from there, it's over to you to, to, to um, throw in your ideas. And, and we're going to be recording this and collecting them up and, and feeding them back to you at the end. So please welcome uh, Philip Goad, Professor of Architecture um, and Chair at Melbourne Uni. Thanks very much, Roy. Um, there, there are plenty of seats here, so if people want to move in, am I doing the right thing? Come on. <laughs> so Rory's given a terrific in introduction. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to give everyone a slight history lesson, but I think it's one worth retelling, uh, sometimes again and again. So if you can imagine Melbourne at the end of World War II, there's an enormous housing shortage and uh, there is, if you like, um, a situation where the suburbs are about to experience extraordinary growth. In some ways, the growth that we're experiencing today uh, out west and out north and northeast and southeast. Uh, the uh, Royal Victorian Institute of Architects now the Australian Institute of Architects, uh, at that time wanted to make some form of contribution. And they'd been thinking about how to actually uh, encourage homeowners to think about good design in the sort of generic notion of what good design might be. And even students in the late 1930s had been talking about it. Uh, one architect in Sydney, uh, A.S. Hook, had, had thought about it in 1925, but nothing had, nothing had really come, come to uh, uh, fruition. But some older members of the profession, Aris Domain and Geoffrey Mewton, were very strong and said we should develop a small homes, they called it first a small homes bureau, modelled on American ideas. And in 1947, they established the Royal Victorian Institute of Architects Small Home Service. And they looked around for a director. The first director of the service was a young 28-year-old architect. Uh, so it could be any one of you today. And his name was Robin Boyd. And so he became the first director of the Small Home Service. And one of the key aspects of the Small Home Service was that you could come into their offices in Flinders Street as part of the, at the ground level of the old State Electricity Commission building and for five pounds you could get plans for a house and specification. So an extraordinary offer. 
And the plans, you could choose from a whole range of plans. They all had a letter before a number. So you might look at T18, V35, or B2. B meant solid brick, T meant timber, V meant brick veneer. And all of the designs had been uh, drawn up by uh, Melbourne architects. They were, uh, didn't have any necessary signature to them, so they were part of a whole catalogue, a general catalogue. So you had young architects like Kevin Borland, Peter McIntyre, Robin Boyd, Neil Clarahan, John and Phyllis Murphy, all contributing uh, 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 house designs generally between 10 and 12 squares to go on any suburban block all across Melbourne. Boyd also too, in terms of how, do, how he thought, how do I actually promote this? So every week uh, there would be an article in the newspaper. So there would be a, an article written by Robin Boyd about uh, things about design. It might be furniture, it might be how do you think about an open plan living room, it might be how you think about correct solar orientation on a suburban block. So there was an article generally, and then there was also as part of the weekly uh, article, would be a house featured from the service. So it might be T25, there would be a plan, a perspective, and a description of the house. So this is immediately uh, getting good design uh, uh, into the newspaper, and so Boyd became very quickly a household name, because every week you would go to turn to the pages of the age and find a new house or an issue described. So he would not only talk about the small home service, he'd talk about prefabrication, he'd talk about Melbourne's hatred of trees and their tendency to cut down trees when they were uh, 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 building. He also took aim at the so-called jerry builder. So the jerry builder was, if you like, the unlicensed builder who was building across the suburbs. And what Boyd was keen was to say that these people weren't necessarily doing a bad thing, but they weren't necessarily building good design. And the whole thing was that what the small home service offered was, if you like, a catalogue of new and progressive ways of thinking about living in the suburbs. So it's really important to remember, I think, that Boyd wasn't against the suburbs. He was thinking how we could actually do it better. And there were a number of initiatives that went along with the small home service. So we have the service where you could walk in off the street and for £5 get planned specifications and housing advice. He's writing in the age every week, so very quickly it becomes a regular feature. And then uh, uh, he also designed for the big home exhibitions to demonstration houses. So in 1949, he designed the House of Tomorrow, which was built at one-to-one -one scale inside the Royal Exhibition Buildings. And then in 1951, he designed the Sunshine House, also built at one-to-one -one scale in the Exhibition Buildings as part of a home, home exhibition. So this is another idea of actually trying to publicise good design by getting people to actually come and see full-scale examples, fully furnished, and the Sunshine House was actually raffled off as well. Um, we don't quite know exactly where it ended up, but I think over in Glen Waverley uh, uh, somewhere. I've got one of my, my students working on that. Boyd wrote between 1947 and 1953. So it's six years of presence in the, in the Age newspaper. His role was then taken over by Neil Clarehan, who did exactly the same thing. He wrote from 1954 until 1961, continuing it. So it's more than a decade that the age is promoting and the institute are promoting good design. What Clarehan does slightly differently, he also gets two demonstration houses built, but actually in the suburbs. So the age dream home is built in 1955 in Union Road, Surrey Hills. And on Whitehorse Road, the Inselwall Demonstration House is built uh, in Blackburn in 1957. And then after 1961, Clarahan hands on the reins to Jack Clark, former Essendon footy player. Uh, Daryl Jackson is also director of the Small Home Service at some stage. Then John Barker and also Dennis Carter. And it goes all the way through to 1981 when it then gets rebranded as Archie Centre and becomes a national, if you like, operation. So 
what Boyd had actually uh, achieved was to make everyday houses for everyday Melbournians and by extension everyday Australians uh, 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 available and also the, the idea of good design as an everyday topic. Is that you read the newspaper uh, and the important thing about these articles, they were about current ideas affecting uh, uh, Melbournians and, and Victorians. The prefabrication scandals of the, the late 1940s. Uh, 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 also, too, Neil Clarehan would write about Frank Lloyd Wright in the Age newspaper. So it's, it's uh, I, I think, an extraordinary, um, uh, if you like, initiative which, from which we could actually still learn a great deal. Now, I've, I could keep going, I'm sorry, <laughs> but uh, I'll hand back to Rory. I, I mean, maybe first a question, Philip, is... Um what were the broader um, challenges that the service was designed to address? I mean, you mentioned the jerry builders and the poor, um, uh, I guess, building quality in the, in the suburbs. Yep. Look, the, uh, one of the key reasons for initiating the service was that until around 1951-52, there were size restrictions on houses. So you could only build houses between 10 and 12 squares, which meant that... Uh, Boyd was very concerned about uh, design, designing more economically in terms of space, so actually having more responsible, more uh, responsible plans in terms of solar orientation, maximising living space, making use of the suburban block as a total, if you like, ecology or environment. So it wasn't just facing the sort of decorative facade to the street, which he lampooned in Australia's home and the Australian ugliness. He was saying, we can do a lot better with less. And remarkably, I think, after these size restrictions were lifted, the small home service still continued at that ethos of uh, designing houses that weren't excessive, but they ranged. You could get a holiday house too, uh, you, or you could get something slightly experimental. Uh, Kevin Boland had a butterfly roof for one of his designs, or you could go, you could choose a design which simply had uh, 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 an excellent solar orientated plan, but it didn't look ultra modern. So they weren't trying to revolutionise things overnight. There was a whole scale of uh, design opportunities that were available. And, and just to put that in context then, so 10 to 12 squares is, is 100 to 120 square metres, and the, the average house size today I think is. 350 to 400, yeah. So it's yeah. A, it's a, it's one third of the of the current um, stat, and we're, and that was still three bedrooms and with a study and uh, and a great living room. That's right. Presumably, yeah. and the other thing was that you had regulations in those days that required natural light and ventilation to all bathrooms. Uh, you had separate uh, shower rooms. And none and of this borrowed light rubbish. No, or, no, no. And you had often separate uh, uh, toilet rooms. So they weren't shared in a bathroom, so it meant that a simple thing like that could make a bathroom much more flexible. Certain facilities can be used while someone's in the bathroom, you know? It, it's just common, common sense in many respects. Now, to the main event. Thank you, Philip. Sure. Please thank Philip. Yeah. <laughs> We've got an amazing turnout, full house, so um, perhaps we can... Dive in. Do, we, do I have any hands for uh, a, a contributing comments? I mean, I guess a sort of reminder of the discussion is um, is really, you know, what are the broad um, systems that we could apply to retrofitting the suburbs as they are? Um, I, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in questioning, I guess, is, is some of the orthodox answers that we often hear for these, for, for in addressing this part of the city. Um, we talk a lot about urban growth boundaries and we talk a lot about medium density housing. Um, the urban growth boundary was first put in place in 1971. I think we've moved it five or six times since then. So, so that to me doesn't seem like a, a tool which has been that useful. Um, the other one is medium density. I, I think if, if many of the people who are living in, um, in the suburbs today uh, may not want to live in, a, in an apartment. And I think there's another example where architects in particular are trying to impose a way of living onto... Uh, and the way that they would like to live. So, again, 
how do we take the suburbs for, for what they are and celebrate them for what they are and to kind of amplify their possibilities? Uh, what, one of the things that I'm interested in is, um, is working at the scale of the street or at the scale of the neighbourhood. I mean, perhaps, Philip, to, to, to ask you again, mm -hmm. uh, it's in, this word house was central or home was central, as in the single home, the single family... Um, was there any uh, uh, combinations addressed or any sense that these things could, could add, that a number of houses could add up and share services or, or any of those kinds of ideas? Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, look, what we tend to overlook when we look back at that period was that there were, were not only individual houses, but often you would have uh, small if you like, small house developments of conjoined four or five houses on a much larger block. So you have, let's say, someone like Roy Grounds in his own house in Hill Street, Turek. He, it's a nice place to live, of course, but uh, a, he lives in a tiny house right on the street. So built close to the street, but behind, uh, I think, half a dozen flats. And they're just two-storey flats, shared driveway. Uh, they're essentially... Uh, uh, half a dozen courtyard houses, I think it's actually four courtyard houses, and I think there are those sort of low-scale opportunities which we actually haven't looked enough at. And dare I say that the good old villa unit from the late 50s, early 60s was not actually a bad option for many people, particularly for elderly people, houses on one level, shared driveway, neighbours who can keep an eye on you, uh, and also to uh, a garden that's manageable but that's still your own. So I think those there are little things that that um, uh, that we can actually achieve without dramatically changing the type. Okay, other ideas, Jill. Jill. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, I was going to make two observations really, and one is that that incredible time in Victoria or Melbourne, that you're talking about post-war, when, when materials were scarce, um, uh, there wasn't much money around, um, things were very restricted and people were terribly careful with what they did. And, and I think that that era of modesty, if you like, and you compared the, the houses that were built at the time versus the average house now, um, it says something about having to be innovative and it says something about people's perhaps idea that maybe you start small and you maybe add. I think you'd find most of those houses have had several renovations, they've added a bedroom, etc. and the idea of one bathroom mm. for a family just seems to make so much sense rather than doing the sort of real estate model of two and a half bathrooms for for every family. So that sort of idea of modesty, but there was also that incredible pioneering spirit of actually, and this is what's really important, of following the railway lines. And I think that those the suburbs where a lot of the small homes were kind of heading for, there were railway lines in place and that was a new initiative and they were orchards, they were sort of um, fields, etc., and they became our suburbs. And I, But I think, despite the fact they were kind of led by the car you still had that capacity to commute or to, to catch public transport, which seemed to be a really important link, which is something that is a current link, I think, that one needs to think about in terms of densifying. Then I was just going to make one other comment, which is the villa unit comment, because I think it's a, an, an interesting one. And there is that smaller, um, you know, lower density but higher density than your average house. And I guess I... I um, I made a really in interesting observation. I was in Bond Beach a few weeks ago, or, you know, a few months ago, and I actually thought there's something kind of strange about this suburb. It's the most fantastic place, but there's something slightly odd about it. And I, when I went back to my office, I looked at a, an aerial photograph of it, and every single block, individual block, has been divided into six, eight or ten villa units, basically. That's the model of um, densification that's been happening. But what's come with it is six, eight or ten cars on that site. And what that's meant is the idea of the small garden, etc., is actually non-existent almost. So those sites are now 
basically concrete with six, eight or ten houses and six, eight or ten cars. And I think that's a real problem, that how, how do we actually change that love affair with the car that kind of went with the suburbs and it has grown so much so that some of the outer suburban houses we have have five cars parked around them. Yeah. Jill, I think your comment about the railway and the suburbs is absolutely spot on. So there were belts of small home service houses in places like Blackburn, Ringwood uh, and the like, as well as along the peninsula with that, that fantastic train line down the peninsula. And uh, 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 similarly, the experiment with materials was really conscientious, you know, there were shortages of bricks and shortages of terracotta tiles. So the, the small home service gave people different uh, alternatives for the, the form of the house. The problem of cars, I think, is huge. Um, and I think also to a, a, a problem of people not learning to love the garden anymore. Um, I think that, has, that uh, is, a, is a great loss. But enormous potential if we decided to do with, le with less cars. Okay, I've, I've, well, here we go, we've got a hand over here. Thank you. I built a small timber frame weatherboard house in uh, 1952 with, based on a plan from uh, the Eight Small Home Service which paid me five pounds. Um, <laughs> As I recall, the 10 square, uh, it was mandated, I think, by the government because of the acute shortage of building materials. So that was all right. It was two bedrooms, one living room, a bathroom and a, a kitchen. That's all. That's all we needed. But the point I'm, I'd like to stress is that it was capable of extension. It was designed by an architect who said, right, this is a very small home, but later on they might want more rooms. So it was capable of extension. I extended it twice. Now, do you, know, do you know what I roofed it with? Go on. <laughs> Hardy's corrugated asbestos. Super 6 yeah. corrugated asbestos cement sheets. <laughs> because, <laughs> good point, good point. Because you had to wait for time. You had to wait, you had to put your name down on a list for bricks and the shortage was mainly bricks and tiles, roofing tiles. It was a timber shortage, so there's a shortage of everything. So the small home was a good idea from that point of view. Well, the government said, look, that's, yeah, it's got to be 10 squares maximum, maybe 12. Tw but 12 if you were a brick veneer because you were apparently in a so-called better suburb. Right, OK. Yeah. <laughs> well, mine was 10. I don't know who the architect was. I can't remember the, the number. What suburb is it? Yeah. Now known as East Maltham. Yeah. <laughs> Chadston. Unmade, unmade streets, unmade roads. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, you won't believe this, no sewage. It came uh, after about two years, but there was no sewage. So that was my experience, and I, I think now uh, there's a need for it again. Of course, I know there's a land shortage, and you've got to go a long way out from Melbourne to get a, a block of land. Mine was a, a conventional 50 by 150 foot block of land. Uh, and... Um, it worked. Say how you got the skills. No, no, okay. <laughs> so, so that was my experience. Yeah. Brilliant. I, I think, I think so one, of, one of the things... Yep. <laughs> what, another development that came out of the small home service was a strong interest in project homes. So Boyd also then, after he'd uh, left the small home service and was in practice, also got involved with the so-called Peninsula House for CHI homes. And that was a different venture. It was working directly with a builder to provide a, an off-the-shelf house. And it was project houses like the Peninsula House which then led to merchant builders in, in the 1960s, from 1965. And I think merchant builders uh, uh, were great admirers of Boyd, but what they did in terms of the small lot house was to investigate the issue or the legal issue of the Cluster Title Act to enable uh, different size of blocks but also shared landscaping and to play down the presence of the motor car. 
I'm going to start picking on people because I see familiar faces in the crowd. All right, over there. All right, here we go. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm up the back here, but I've, um, I just wanted to um, put into the mix the, uh, the role of, of council in, in um, resurrecting a, a, an amazing idea from our um, past. And, and really they're, they're um, uh, kind of stick-in-the-mud um, approach to good design within, um, within inner-city suburbs. And I think that the small home service would really be resurrected well um, given that you know land prices are surging and um, and also the aging population of, of of houses within a city that need to be kind of infilled um, and I guess um, the w w an idea would be that if if there's designers amongst us here is that um, you kind of we set up a, a a way of lobbying councils and and planners to basically incorporate um, a uh, a small home service set of homes, so to speak, that um, broadly, uh, you know, can be fitted on a number of um, inner city blocks, but um, that they can pretty much guarantee a, an expedited um, uh, town planning process. So um, as consumers, um, they're attracted to this idea because rather than the, the standard six to eight months or four to eight months that we're... Um, that we're met as this sort of um, you know paradigm that we've that we currently have to accept. Instead, there's um, a, a guarantee of a of a you know four week um, turnaround if if you place a small homes on your on your house. So then, therefore, bring um, good architecture back into the inner city suburbs where houses are starting to um, become derelict, and uh, and uh, at the same time being very um, uh, 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 attractive to the consumer. What, what are your thoughts on that? Beauty. I'm going to put that to Andy Fergus from the uh, City of <laughs> Melbourne. <laughs> so, Andy, a, um, a, a pre-agreed planning permit for particular housing types. Thanks. You're not meant to say where I work, but thanks, Lori. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I think, I think it's a really interesting question about plan, planning expediency and, and supporting good design. Um, I also think that uh, councils generally uh, lack the foresight to understand um, what the benefits are. And I think we can't expect that local governments who, you know, in Bond Beach, they might have got elected to resurface a footy oval <laughs> and then suddenly they're making decisions about their neighbourhood for the next 100 years. That's a, it's a big jump. So I don't think we should assume that councils know these benefits that we talk about and we need to find a ways to communicate to them. But I might even take a step back from that. We talk about, this is a very Australian thing, where we talk about government, it's this thing, it's this other, and it's a problem and we complain about it. But actually, government is completely responsive to us, to you, um, and you can exert incredible influence over them. Um, and I think to, to really rethink the way we interact with government and thinking about architects lobbying in really clever ways. I know there were a lot of architects in Melbourne lobbying for the better apartments a couple of years ago. Um, that did fall flat somewhat, but there was a lot of really great energy around that. And that's something we can really harness. Um, so maybe my answer is, sounds like a, a, um, a kind of easy get out because I am from government, but I actually think as someone who works within government has a lot of ideas about how to address these things, I'm often hamstrung in my role to influence the politicians. I need support from the community to give me the leverage to influence these people. So I think, yeah, my answer is more activism. <laughs> Thank you. Andy, I'm going to ask you one more question because you just been, got back with Kath from travelling around the world looking at best practice um, in Europe uh, and, and I think in the US. But um, tell us, give, give us one idea that you saw on your trip which we, can, which we need here in Melbourne. I'm going to take a guess you've heard of this one, but I'm going to talk about Balkslotterham um, in the north of Amsterdam. I don't know how many people have been to Amsterdam recently. Maybe a little show of hands. Yeah. Did anyone catch the ferry across to the north and have a bit of a look? Tim, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, this area is super interesting because everyone thinks of, you know, UNESCO, Amsterdam, this staid, very predictable, complete city. But what's happening on the north side of the city is super interesting. Um, I don't know how long I've got, Rory, but I'll try... I don't have long. Okay. Basically, GFC hits the blank check theory, which is where you designate an area for renewal, think it's a great idea, and just wait for someone to drop money from the sky. It didn't work. And so what they started doing is releasing plots with rules to individuals. 
and so they sort of took prop properties out of the normal speculative market. You know, they used f financial design as a tool of design, which is something we must talk about here today. Um, and they created plots where they allowed people to be pioneers in an area where the market may not want to build. So Balk Slaughterham, they did this through two different models. One's called self-bow, which is much like the small home service sort of idea, you know, people procuring their own house on a small plot. Or they collectivise them into what's called a CPO or bow grouper or this type of thing, which is a sort of apartments. And these models have really flourished under a circumstance of economic modesty. So seeing these people delivering their own neighbourhoods. And the most remarkable thing about it is we forgive Docklands and say, oh, yeah, it'll take 80 years to get good and that sort of thing. And maybe it will, but Balk Slaughterham proves you can do it the day of completion. In fact, during construction, we saw people living in caravans on site talking to their neighbours in a high-density urban renewal context, having barbecues with their kids playing between the streets. You know, it was much like um, Ant's kind of um, magic world at Haller Street where the, you find the kids in the basement of the neighbour's house after a dinner party or something like that. But this was playing out, not in, um, you know, playing out in an urban renewal context. So I think Balk Slaughterham for me is one of the most incredible urban renewal areas I've seen. Really, thanks so much, Andy. Um, Lindsay. Here we go. Thanks. Um, my parents purchased a, an aged small home service house, a set of plans, um, and I grew up in, in one of the houses. In fact, our whole street was populated by um, aged home small houses in most of the suburb in Beaumaris, um, down the road from Philip. <laughs> <laughs> but what was interesting about the uh, houses, I think, was that they provided a model that people could um, purchase and, and live in a house that integrated extremely well with the landscape. Um, most of the houses in our street were courtyard houses and they were built around the tea tree in Beaumaris. Um, and it provided people with um, light to every room in the house and something that was touched on earlier. When we talk about the, the areas that those houses were built in, they were predominantly what is known now as the grey belt of Melbourne. Um, and what seems to be missing is that idea of an effective model to redevelop those suburbs. So we seem to have answers for the inner city, um, but we don't really have models at this stage, Australian models that suit us and the way we live for the grey belt and, and it might be an initiative for architects to take on board. Going back to the idea of the landscape and the integration with the landscape and back to Jill's comment with the way that these gray, gray, this grey belt is being unsatisfactory and unsatisfactorily developed at the moment with a predominance of car parking space and so forth seems to be a little bit of a problem. Um, anyway. Sure. And I, I, I think, Lindsay, you're right. It's, it's the, those suburbs like Bumoros, Blackburn, Ringwood and the like, uh, and uh, parts of Essendon as well, but generally down the bay, where there actually hasn't been a satisfactory way of slow consolidation. Um, and it's easy, I think, to at some point say, well, look, you know, perhaps we should rethink the granny flat uh, or the, the conversion of all of those garages that were built, or, but, but some other way of actually, do you have landowners who don't want to move out of the suburb because they, they grew up there and they had their families there, are there land ownership models where you combine two plots and then put three, three houses on, those sort of um, options? But also just the idea of actually having another building on the block, which might be a studio for the teenager, um, or a, uh, which then might become a place for your parents, or it might become a place for you once you leave the, the, the older children in the main house. There are all sorts of options. We're not sort of flexible enough, I think, often, to, to think of a long life solution. And that would be, have to be a government initiative where affordability is a big issue for most people these days. Um, you buy a 
house in the grey belt, timber place that's probably at the end of its life or close to it, and it'd be a much better option to perhaps share the site with other people um, and, and get more density in a, in a way that provided the amenity that we're looking for. One of the a few hands. We'll, we'll go. One of the things I'm really excited about is to is to. We hear a lot about, you know, knocking over a house and putting on three onto the same block. I'm interested in models which can, um, I guess, retain the house and still increase the density through clever clever design, clever planning, because it allows often or more often people to stay in place, communities to stay together, and it's sort of. Well, it's better sustainability, and it's um, and it's sort of better for the urban fabric, I think, um, and. Ant, you are somebody who is a designer, architect, working in the suburbs, please. Right. I think I might have a good case study for actually a project that we're doing at the moment. So we've done a bunch of projects around Fairfield, Northgate and Brunswick. Um, many of the typical projects, which is the kitchen, living, dining, type A, reno, which is taking up part of the backyard with those living spaces. But one that we're recently, it's about to be completed, was something I see a lot of potential in. Um, really interesting project. Clients that came to us and requested to subdivide their property, so they would retain the house and build a house at the back. Um, they'd been around speaking to a few different architects about it, and my question to them was, why do you want to be property developers? They said, well, we don't. We just want to build a house at the back and retain one and live in the other. And I was like, well, we, if you subdivide, we need to go through the whole planning process uh, you'll lose a lot of the open space, like Jill was mentioning, will become car parking for the two houses required. However, we could just build a second house in your backyard that's attached to the original one and not even have to go through planning because the size of the lot uh, meant that uh, we could do two storeys within the res code setbacks and provide two houses on the site without actually having to go through that process at all. And it's really interesting because they're going to live in one of the houses, the, the new part at the back, and then they're actually going to rent out the front to long-term students, international students is their idea. The way that we've designed it is that it can be completely split at some time. There's some sort of legal contract could be entered into about how the land would be shared or split between two different owners. And it's also been designed so that it could become one single home as well. And it's been really fascinating, and, and it means that, you know, they are two relatively small homes of about 120 square metres each, with one bathroom and one kitchen each. And there's no restraints on being able to do that. There's no rules saying that you can't have two kitchens on one house. So it's, it's been good. The wow. Brilliant precedent. And I, and I have to say, I didn't even know that. That, that, that it was possible to extend in that way and to, and to densify in that way. I mean, one of the other things in the background of this discussion, I think, is, is getting to scale. I mean, whenever I talk about these things, I always come across another a brilliant example like this. Um, and the challenge is, I think, now to kind of um, share those more widely. I mean, the, the, the brilliance of the small home service, of course, was that this weekly article in The Age, this big audience, this big public conversation. So perhaps another question we ought to be asking is, and perhaps someone here has an answer, um, what, what would the platform be today? I mean, if we can presume The Age is not what it used to be, apologies to anyone. <laughs> but, uh, you know, is it a digital thing? Should we be making toolkits? Is there a role for the um, Institute of Architects or for the um, state government architect. Um, how, how, do we get, how do we share stories like Ant's great um, uh, extension story, which is redensifying re uh, while retaining the existing property? Does anyone have a, have a suggestion on that? I'm going I'm I'm to pick on you soon, Vanessa, as well. <laughs> Here we are. Hi. Um, I, live in a, I live in an apartment in, which was built in the 50s on St Kilda Road and, and an unusual one because it's got a huge central courtyard. So I certainly believe in this small house living space. But it's really interesting to me that we get so much of this um, free t TV stuff that's all about tiny houses and those sorts of things which are often caravans that can be put onto plots which in the Australian city environment is probably not even a consideration because the land itself is difficult. But yet we're seeing this in the social realms of uh, marketing and, and social media so easily. 
and we're also seeing the flippant houses. Surely there's a wonderful way that we can produce a concept that is about um, dense living, interesting, um, as we were saying in the 50s, interesting formats of how do we even build, a lot of which we were actually making in Australia. Why is it that we even have cultural cringe about these things that we can so easily do here that we can't market it out to the rest of the world? That's the bit that I find really interesting, that the, it's actually here, it's happening. It's happening over in the suburbs where you can split a house in half, uh, property in half. But what are we missing? Is it the production values are too expensive here or is it that there is a cultural cringe? It's just a question. Um, yeah, perhaps. Oh, you want to answer that one? Uh, oh, just quickly. I mean, I, mean um, I was going to ask you actually, Philip. Mm -hmm. The the mass home builders. I mean, we hear a lot about them in the press. I, I'm not sure it's even that cultural. I think it's simply a kind of um, business monopoly at the moment. They try. Was that also an issue in the when? Is that what Boyd was also responding to in the in the 1950s? Um, I, I think it's it's a. The 50s were different. I mean, now you have these incredible marketing uh, machines, which are these big mass housing uh, um, companies. There was an ad on TV the other, other night I saw. Was it for Porter Davis? Halfway through the ad, I couldn't figure out what they were selling, um, <laughs> what it was. And, uh, yeah, it was about respect. But, I mean, it was very clever. Uh, uh, but I think those... Um, ways of procurement of a house are so easily delivered. I, I think that's part of the problem. And it actually takes, I think, a bit of um, initiative to actually do something slightly different. And in some respects, I think it's perhaps the initiative to do it with others, to collaborate with other people so that you're actually not doing it alone. So the more the a couple of families do it or, or two or three or more, I think the more um, interesting and more diverse the possibilities are. I think you're, you're absolutely right that we should be able to do it and in actual fact we appear to have more space than a lot of our uh, neighbours overseas to actually be more creative and more, in, more inventive and in some respects able to actually negotiate with the legal and council side of things who are often um, amenable, as we have heard, to, to change. Vanessa. Oh, sorry. President of I the Institute. <laughs> Thanks, um, Yeah, a couple of things. One is I, too, grew up in one of those <laughs> houses with six people and one toilet, and we extended some time later when we were all teenagers to have two toilets, but we all survived. Um, I really want to pick up on that point of housing options because I think that the tract builders really do have a hold on the market and looking at those figures that Rory mentioned at the beginning of the population expand, expected population expansion of, of Melbourne in the hundreds of thousands per year um, and looking at how those people are going to be housed and what sort of housing are they really attracted to. And it, a huge number we hear from the planning minister come to Melbourne because our house and land packages are cheaper than those in New South Wales. So we're actually marketing to our immigrants to, to use that type of housing. But we're also finding that there's very little other option. You know, that it's very easy to access those house and land packages and... But not everybody um, is a family, as you were saying before. And families, you know, come with an extended network. So you might have the nuclear family, but they would have ageing parents. If they all want to live within proximity, there's no options. It's not like Andy was mentioning before, where in the one area you'll have um, house and land, but you'll also have some apartments um, together, so you could have people having housing options within the one suburb. Our peripheries don't look like that at all, and I think that's a real problem. And that's, I think that's the area um, where we have done quite a bit of work to try and convince some of those tract builders to put in some cluster housing or some apartment buildings. So there's, 
you have house and land as well as apartments, so you can house a range of people. And there's a lot of there's been a lot of um, opposition to that, but a couple have started and they were snapped up. So we're starting to prove that there's desirability around that. There's been one at Point Cook, um, and there's been one out at Melton. So. There is some understanding that not everybody wants to live in just a house and land package. Yeah. Um, Rory's asked Vanessa to explain what, what exactly do we mean by cluster housing? <laughs> well, that, that as well can, can yeah. take a number of, of forms where it might be, um, you know, several small... Um, houses with one um, sort of driveway around an amenity. It might mean that there's an area of shared garden and all the car parking might occur somewhere in one point of the, of the site. Um, it might mean um, some joined, you know, some sort of um, joined dwellings. It, it can mean a whole range of things. But often also, to at the base of it, is a clustered title. So yes, there's some that's right. agreement to share, you know, is, is I think, fundamental. Not very good with microphones. Can I, can I just speak like this? No. No? no? Okay, I'll, I'll give this a go. Um, I guess coming to that, that question and that problem of how do we promote and develop uh, communities design literacy? That was a question that was asked before. Um, I've got a very sort of personal, practical solution. I work with about 150 young people at a government high school every week. I know we've got a lot of experts in this space right here. If you would like to come in and work with them, share some of your experiences, share some of these fascinating case studies that I've heard today, come and see me. Please. <coughs> There we go. There's, a, there's an offer. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, now there's a Rory, can I just say something about that? Um, yes. It was totally un, unprompted, so, but thank you. There used to be the Architects in Schools program, which was one that was started by a number of women a number of years ago, a fantastic uh, initiative of teaching the next generation of homeowners or design buyers. And so... It's, it's um, I think, an initiative that also could be looked at very closely. Super, thank you. Now, one of the other um, issues in the background here is sustainability, and I've spotted Chris Barnett down here in the front, uh, leading expert on sustainability. Chris, have you got a, a comment to add? Um, I think there's lots of sustainability challenges in the conversation here. Um, on the broader level, I think it really revolves around transport and that's really the key to how we're going to live in livable cities, whether it's the work, live and play precinct or whether it's just getting more effective public transport options in place. Um, I've been on a journey into modular housing, um, which, and Boyd has been one of my beacons in the base thinking of what we're doing at Habitech, in that I think there's a material shortage overlay in the 50s in his space, very immediate post-war material shortage led to great engineering innovation, great using materials better. Now we're facing a natural resource challenge into the future, not quite as dire, um, but that certainly we have to be smarter in how we use materials and we, we have to get a cradle to cradle happening if we've got any hope to make it truly sustainable. The other angle I suppose is thinking about the media and how he was communicating with people. We're heading towards a vision of mass customisation. Now Offering design to more Australians is very much part of our mission and we'd like to see architecture affecting the lives of more people. Um, so against the project home model that's probably dominated the market since Boyd's time, we're coming into the era of participatory design on a whole lot of levels. We're looking at modular fabrics where you can quickly customise for a site without needing to create a different model. If the wall areas stay the same, if the window areas stay the same, the price doesn't differ. So it's the idea that you don't just have to have versions T23 and U43. You can have a starting vision that suits your orientation and lot size and very have a small online, technically smart design service that 
can then customise it to your brief and lifestyle. So I find that really exciting. And uh, I think one of those challenges is, yeah, what is the mass media platform that can get better design into people's lives? So, Chris, can I ask you, it was a really interesting point that you could almost go online, design your own home, and the kit of parts is actually sustainably engineered, if you like, or managed for you, and that you could actually have an online small home service. Yeah, and it fits into BIM, which we're sort of using live time, and that customization's all done via programming. It doesn't have to add a lot of labour to the design task. Mm -hmm. The design skill is put in to, to make the changes and make the design decisions and to communicate with people. Then we've got the technology that can produce that kit of parts and customise it extremely effectively. Um, so I think that's a big option. Lego's a leader and we talk about a lot in prefab. They have custom made blocks you can get 3D printed for a price. So there's already these models there, IKEA do amazing things. Um, and there's a whole range of customisation in European products that I don't think we quite have here yet, but uh, coming soon. Thanks, Chris. Andy, a quick one. I think it's really important to understand construction innovation within speculation, particularly in multi-residential. So just to give an example, um, if a developer uses prefabrication in a first project, um, and they're able to deliver a significantly larger profit margin, they're never going to pass that on to the purchasers if there's profit to be made. So I think what we have to understand is that what that then does is the next property they buy, they can spend more on the site because they've reduced their construction cost. So after a couple of projects, we're back to where we were, but with more pressure on everyone because of that construction performance. So I completely agree these things are super important, but when we get into a multi-residential context, um, where it's most important, we need to find a way to remove these projects from the speculative market because if we can remove that profit margin, then suddenly all those benefits you're talking about are delivered to the residents, not to the developer. I think that's hugely important to understand. Thank you, Andy. Which, mean, which was one of the key aspirations of the small home service. It was initiated at, at a time when the Institute was, in a way, being a good citizen. So um, there wasn't any sort of profit margin behind the system. I, I was going to add a point in here which, which is connected to that, which is that um, not to confuse housing with construction is something that we often fall into in these types of debates. I mean, something that I was reminded of the other day is that we don't have a housing crisis, we have an accommodation crisis. And that's because of how many spare rooms we all collectively sit on. So it's, it's as much a challenge, I think, or more of a challenge for redistribution or for, or for redesign or, or repurposing the, the buildings that we already have as it is to invent new ways of building which are more, which are, uh, more sustainable or more affordable. So, um, but the, the, I mean, to p also pick up on Chris's point about the media, this is the other half of the discussion, I think, which, um, which the small home service sets up so usefully for us. But I haven't seen many comments yet about the platform of distribution or here we go, uh, red and black. Yeah, so um, I run a practice which is um, an architecture practice but is also heavily um, engaged with media um, and has an interest in media. And um, so I think the question would be if Robin Boyd was around today, what sort of media platforms would he be on? Well, um, he'd be writing for Domain, which is kind of what, uh, the Don't you think he'd be writing for the Herald Sun? <laughs> quite possibly, quite possibly. But um, but it Ro would also Robinboy. be yeah. it also be fragmented into Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you know, I, I think there's been so much uh, change in the media landscape with the internet and uh, with social media that it's not really about one platform. I think it's about multiple platforms uh, sort of surviving in an ecosystem that sort of reference each other and, and, and capture a, a broad audience. So I don't think it's about picking the one medium. I think it's about um, a diverse group. Thank you. Um, I wanted to go back to the text that was written about this talk today because there's one sentence that I thought was quite provocative and a little searing in its kind of critique of contemporary architecture, and Go I'm just on. going to read it quickly, um, which is edit. to say, and I'm, it's <laughs> smacked of you, Rory. Um, it said, um, uh, 
Where are we? Oh, no, I've lost it. It's basically had a, uh, a provocation that um, contemporary architects in Australia, Melbourne perhaps, um, have turned their sites away from the fringe and into boutique luxury inner city developments. And my question, I guess, is to the industry as a whole is to say if that is kind of an implied social contract or bond that you felt architecture had during this period and up to the early 80s, this, pro this program, um, what needs to change within the profession, within the discipline, within the education, not just the platforms that enable communication, but what has to happen within the discipline itself to reaffirm that kind of social contract again today? Good question. Thank you. I, I, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to uh, take a swing at it, and then I can see Harriet sitting behind you with a smile on her face. <laughs> and perhaps she can reflect on the, on the changing role of the architect, actually, in the, in, in the past, say, 50-odd uh, years, which, um, which we're talking about. So, well, first of all, to explain that, that, that statement, I think that's absolutely true. I, I see in the, in the architecture of practice uh, everything from what we publish in the magazines to what my friends say in the pub. They're, not, they're turning down projects worth less than 150000 just because it's not worth their time. Um, and I think, wow, a whole industry d desi about design, um, turning their backs on the reality of living, um, and that really that's completely unsustainable as a, as a way to go forward. Uh, we've hitched our wagon to the 1% to the um, big projects which make money and go in the magazines. So, um, you know, and I, and I think that is, as you say, a sort of neglect of the, of the social contract. Um, the idea that we're registered, we're the only ones able to perform that service, and yet we're ignoring that huge market, I think is a huge um, uh, neglect of our responsibilities. So... Um, Please, Philip. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I think uh, students are not rejecting that contract. At, at uh, many of the design schools, the students are exploring those ideas with huge enthusiasm, and they have a commitment. I think the disturbing thing is when they get out into the profession, um, it's like a cold bath. You know, it all sort of deflates. Now, a whole lot of hands have gone up. Yeah. But, Can I but, but, pick but up on that was, really quickly? Yeah, yeah. I'll yeah, yeah. handle we'll my We'll go here friend. and then we'll go over here. Um, I heard a really, really interesting program on the radio a little while ago about how airlines really effectively grew the pie with low-cost airlines. They didn't necessarily take away from other carriers, but they increased the number of people who were flying hugely. So maybe as architects, we need to look at our own... Um, model of practice or financial models and tweak those accordingly and think about how we grow the pie because then it's going to be a win-win. There's going to be more, more work for more architects but there's also going to be more good design which is going to be, you know, again, have huge um, environmental and social implications and is going to end up being a much better result for the country. Wow, very interesting suggestion of the low-cost airlines. And now uh, Harriet Edquist, curator of... Sorry, I just oh. should add that... I assume we probably can do better than Jetstar. I hope so. <laughs> or at least less uh, environmentally problematic. Uh, Harriet. Um, as I said, Rory, I haven't really got much to <laughs> say in this space. But one thing that has um, I've been thinking about is, is the topic is what would Boyd do? And I, if we switched that, and that wasn't the topic at all, the topic is what would people do? Because as something Vanessa said about when those um, track builders were actually popped up some apartments, they were snapped up. And someone has mentioned that um, there is a... Well, we all know there's an ageing population, so God knows how many people will be over 60 in 20 years' time. It does strike me that what we haven't talked about today is asking any of those people what they want. And... The top-down, which is what architecture always does and does sometimes well and sometimes appallingly, um, really has to be thought, I think. And, and so, you know, it, it will, I think it really just does need conversations amongst the people who are buying this stuff and what do they want. And we're not it's something that we just are really bad at asking. So we keep on thinking there's some sort of design decision or design um, uh, solution where, in fact, I think possibly... That question somewhere else. Now we have one question behind you and then I'm going to go to you, Timothy. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Harriet, I was just thinking about <clears throat> actually following on from what you just said 
Um, and what can we do? You know, we've heard really great examples of what were do was done and we're in a different spot. We, um, I work in Shepparton, we're building a new museum and we've used that as an excuse to ask people what does good design look like? So it's a local council and that's across local council, that's across a whole range of communities. And as a museum, an art museum, we've seen our role as generating that discussion. We can't do that on our own and arguably it's not our core business. So we've partnered with the University of Melbourne, we've partnered with a whole lot of other organisations, um, tertiary institutions, to bring people up um, in Pavilion um, and say, this is the reality. We've got suburbs growing on a, at a rate of knots. If we're not going to be um, uh, developer-driven, what could they look like and what is unique to our context? Because of the project, or because of the excuse of the project in a way, we have had probably a group of tertiary architecture or design students coming perhaps every two weeks. Um, so the, the museum for us then becomes part of a um, laboratory, part of a workspace, part of a studying space with an active, tangible project that they can then use. So I think in our sense that's what we've looked at this opportunity and what can we do. Um, I'd like to see Victorian architects and, you know, thinking about this idea of the five-pound house, um, that means that people don't have to go to an architect which they often feel nervous about, they can go to an agency and say, look, what are the options? So it removes the, I feel uncomfortable here, um, and yet I still understand what good design can be. Thank you. And Timothy, you had something to add? Yeah, I just want to follow up on those points about what would people do and what should architects do or what would Boyd do. And I think it comes back to the idea of desire for density. We always talk about density and how many more people we can fit on plots of land. But I think it's a question of um, how do people want to live together and inspiring people to live together differently. I think going back to Boyd, um, the case study or experimentation um, kind of showing what these desires could be through building is quite important. And not only in the 1950s, but I think there's many examples around today. But I want to just draw quickly to Western Australia. And the West Australian State Government Housing Department does two experimental projects per year, which addresses the idea of density. So um, not only um, do they run competitions for architects, they involve developers in this conversation as well, because they find if developers um, get involved in these projects, they can find that there's a lot of benefits for them as well, and they can lead the market in new types of models too. So I think it's important not to forget developers in this conversation. Thank you. Lots of hands. We've got, we, this is moving now. I'm going to go here and then here. Thank you. 